This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Paul William Bradley, chairman and founder of Caprica International. In the first of a two-part conversation, Paul shared his story on how he moved from the United States to Asia and became an established business leader working with leading Asian family business in supply chain and logistics, and the interesting lessons learned from culture to people management in his journey across Asia. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And we are sitting in a room somewhere within Shenton Way, the city of Singapore. And it is actually an honor to actually be able to speak to you because you are one of the new Asia leader of the World Economic Forum that only 40 people get that honor. And one of them, I think most people know, is Tony Fernandez of AirAsia. So you are of the same level as him. And who am I talking to is Paul William Bradley, the chairman of Caprica International. And we met in the Young Entrepreneurs Network Forum, interestingly. I hear some of Paul's interesting stories and I know he's always out there to help young entrepreneurs and share his lessons. So Paul, I want to start with from your current role and then we will go back and talk about what you have done and some of the interesting stories that you have. What is your current role and coverage as the chairman of Caprica International? I actually set up Caprica International as a holding company which gives me flexibility to touch a number of areas. One is I'm a CEO mentor to uh, small medium enterprises. I help them as a CEO. I work with their CEOs how to restructure their companies and how to regionalize their business across Asia and also to raise funds. I serve on a number of boards as part of the process from investment banking to uh, tech startups in different spaces to supply chain management. And that gives me an opportunity to touch a lot of different business entities to see the trends that are evolving and to see how I can impact in a positive way those different spaces. And then I also, I also through those board seats, I raise funds for some of the companies going forward. And I mentor tech startups to help them tell their story more effectively, to position their strategic plans in a more focused way so they can really unlock their full potential and break out. I've been involved myself with two IPOs in, in Hong Kong and India and I want to share some of those experiences so that they don't make uh, basic mistakes and they really hit their full potential as companies. So it's really a cross-section that allows me to be involved in a different various roles across Asia. I know you share your story with, during the YEM forum and it's very interesting. I want to get to that part of the story because I think that shaped a lot of how you think about Asia as a region and because you started a career in politics. How, how did that happen? I think it's my love of history and international relations. My mother actually, she's Dutch and she grew up in Indonesia so I was connected to Asia psychologically since I was a kid I suppose. But I got involved in politics since I was 15 years old. In the presidential campaigns, uh, I set up youth organizations in the campaigns. And to my surprise, when I was 
Quite young, I was pulled to Washington to work for Senator Paul Laxalt. And basically, my area was foreign policy and military affairs. So it was really an amazing experience to see Washington from the inside, to go to White House events and other things, and, and to be involved in the presidential inaugural committee as well. And after that, I went back to finish my undergrad in political science, minoring in history economics. I wanted to work in the State Department for an internship, but I decided to compete for a unique opportunity, one of five people that year to work in the British House of Commons. For whatever luck came to play, I was chosen and I got to work for a young conservative member of parliament when Margaret Thatcher was there and it was a phenomenal experience working in Westminster Palace. So it connected me to an important ally of the US. I came back, went to graduate school, but I decided I wanted to do global business so I went to Thunderbird School of Global Management. I did my MBA in International Management. And without realizing it, that was the pivot point that brought me on my adventures to Asia. So while you were in your political career, you actually have worked and actually met leaders like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And I, I do hear some of the stories about how they inspire you. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I'll touch on that, but also from the World Economic Forum and Forbes Global CEO Conference, I, I still have the privilege of meeting a lot of interesting global business leaders and political leaders. So that was just the starting point. And what I've learned when you see Reagan was strategic. He had a vision of what he wanted to accomplish in eight years, and everyone told him it was impossible, and he achieved it. And when you met him, and I was very young at the time, but he came in with amazing charisma and yet very down-to-earth, very humble on the personal level. So these are great marks of leadership. I saw Margaret Thatcher when she was dealing with a crisis and there was a pressure in, in the parliament and she turned the whole thing around, staying calm and dynamic. And these are people I really admire. I've had a chance to meet Lee Kuan Yew twice. And I even asked him a question once and he took 14 minutes to answer the question. And when I was a kid, I read about this visionary who created Singapore, and I never thought in my life I'd had a, a chance to meet such a great man. So I've, I've met a lot of interesting people across the world, Tung Chi in Hong Kong, different prime ministers, recently President Widodo of Indonesia. The thing that really matters is every leader has a different style. This is true both of politics and business, and what matters is you have to be aware of your presence. You have to have some impact of charisma and energy to inspire people. You have to have a vision of where you want to go because people can't follow without knowing where they're going. But there's this beautiful art that requires sensitivity and respect for everyone at every level. And I, I think the leaders, I really admire the ones that were strong, inspirational, but they respected everyone around them versus those who live in their own world and let the power and prestige get to them. These are very important lessons wherever you are in the world. How has the experience in politics shaped your way about thinking about businesses, particularly you have also operated with them then? Well, first, in politics, you're exposed to huge amounts of information that you have to digest and deal with rapidly. 
So you literally will have a few days to go through major briefing papers and then recommend voting positions. And then later when you move into the business world, it really helps prepare you for moving through information and dealing with crises in a calm, focused way. The other one is all global business links to politics and government. When I've set up businesses in China, at that time for NYK line, part of Mitsubishi Group, we would meet with the mayors, with the provincial governors, with officials in the Ministry of Communication, at Sinotrans, and we would need to build these relationships and understand the political issues that were important and get support for the businesses we wanted to put in place. The same is true with India when Mr. Ajay Mittal and I set up our Shi International and we had to work with different levels of the government to build our logistics parks and our railroad. So I, I think in Singapore it's another great example where the government is your partner. And I've set up multiple businesses in Singapore and the Singapore government because of relationship came in and they helped in many ways. So I, I think the two worlds interconnect in global business. So that comes to a part of what you have been doing in Asia, which is you have actually have operated with many famous family businesses in Asia. I'm, I'll probably just list out a few like the Mitsubishi Group in Japan, the Enfong in Hong Kong, the Mittal Builders in India. You also have done some work with the Singapore government as well. My first question is, what was the experience like and how do you navigate the different business challenges of culture? You know, I, I think Thunderbird helped me a lot in terms of being on a, on a campus with 84 nationalities and learning about cross-cultural communications. So I studied Spanish and I ended up in Asia, which is amazing, right? And I think really we all, we all love our countries and we also want to be global citizens. And therefore, when I came to Asia, my objective is to build relationships and learn about every culture. Right, the history, the religion, the politics, and the business environment. And through the process of these relationships, to my surprise, certain individuals had a profound impact on my life and have given me these amazing opportunities. So Tokugawa-san from the former Tokugawa shogunate family was on the board of NYK Line, and he was one of the critical swing votes that allowed me to come to Asia as the first Gaijin foreigner to head the Far East Management Center, together with Tabata-san. And that was an amazing experience where we set up offices in China and Vietnam and expanded regionally and we had the cartel at that time, the Anera and TWA conferences of the nine main shipping lines. So that just was a transformative experience. Then I set up the USJV in Singapore, the Javi Group, which does McDonald's, and BDP, which does a lot of the chemical logistics for Exxon and DuPont and Dow and others. So that gave me a very different vantage point of working for U.S. companies, but in the Asian space. And then I was very fortunate to have, to have been recommended to join Lian Fung, and someone I had read about as one of the most visionary thought leaders in supply chain space for decades, Dr. Victor Fong, invited me to come up. I had a two-hour breakfast meeting with him. I flew back, and then a day later, I was asked to come back and see him a second time. And we just talked about supply chain and the vision of the future. 
and he allowed me to set up the first 4PL in Asia under the IDS group. And, I, and ultimately, I ran three companies within the 34 companies in the group. And the first 4PL advanced supply chain model with a great team. And he has always remained a great mentor to me. And I, and I still visit him and get his advice. And he's generous enough to share his wisdom. So he, he's an amazing individual that, that has a permanent impact on my life. And then while I was in that space, a former customer, the Mittals, a very prominent family in India, Mittal builders own a lot of the major infrastructure in downtown Bombay, and they have hospitals they built for the poor and other things. Mr. Mittal wanted to build the first integrated logistics company with free trade warehousing zone parks, 384 acre parks, our own railroad, and uh, he challenged me to join him as president and him as chairman. I moved to India and created this new business with him you know, leading with the vision. In the end, we built two logistics parks and our own railroad of 18 trains, 90 containers each. And I had the chance, the privilege of climbing inside Indian culture and meeting the families and knowing the business leaders and again, the political relationships and I, I don't know many Westerners who have the privilege of, of being part of Japanese culture, Chinese culture, Indian culture with such visionary leaders. So I benefited from that greatly. I hope I've given back in, in more ways with great teams that I've, I've helped build up and unleash their potential. But it's part of my passion to help support the entrepreneurs in Asia, the, the new generation who really want to build the future. I really believe in that and I want to play a role in shaping that future. So from each one of these Asian business leaders, we always often hear about Asia being very hierarchical in culture. But I think from what I'm hearing from you, it seems that they want the smartest guy to work around them. How do you contrast that with what you have heard or what is the most surprising thing you have learned about working in Asian culture? Well, the first point is there is no Asian culture. There is a Chinese culture and an Indian culture and a Singapore culture and a Thai culture. So the first thing you have to learn is each country is different and unique. They don't choose the best person. They choose people who can build great teams. I don't believe a, a leader is someone who does things. I think our role is to create the DNA of an organization, to inspire people, but to hire people who are better than we are frankly. So I always look to get people who are better than I am in finance and operations and, and IT. And my role is really to build a company with great people. And I think the cultural difference is unique. So in Japan, there's really a long-term strategy, like 15, 20-year strategies of how they want to build the companies. You know, we had a 10-year plan how we wanted to develop China. But then Nothing happened for several years. And then suddenly, with one phone call, we had five offices across China in six weeks. But it had all been planned meticulously several years earlier. The Japanese built consensus at the top. Nimawashi, building uh, relationships and, and pre-positioning pre ideas in advance is a critical skill. And so I think the Japanese culture is very strategic. But quick tactical issues are hard to deal with because there's no time for consensus. And so one of my roles was dealing with quick challenges at times. Then what I learned with 
the Hong Kong Chinese culture, which is a little different than mainland China, is that it's different. There's, there's strategy, there's a strategic play, but there's also this entrepreneurial gift of making quick decisions at the same time. And I, and I think Victor Fung, who has over 200 companies around the world, three are publicly listed, Lian Fung Trading at over $20 billion, two others uh, in retail and brands, but he has a lot of other private companies. He has three to five year strategies on everything he does, but he also can execute decisions quickly with amazing entrepreneurial precision. So that was my experience, as well as many negotiations in China, this combination. And then in India, again, it's a very different culture. There are key families, there's new generation of entrepreneurs coming up. There's a traditional political structure in play, and yet India is rising and has phenomenal potential coming up. When I was there, 850 retail malls were being built, right? The, the national highway system is being doubled. So in spite of the challenges you see in India, you also see amazing infrastructure pop up out of nowhere. And you see the new geo telecom system out of nowhere just jumped, jumped out and is changing the whole telecommunication space. So I, I'm very optimistic about Asia's future, each of the countries. But when you do business, you have to understand and respect what's unique in each. So I'm a native in Singapore. What's the Singapore culture like? Singapore culture is strategic. Singapore plans way ahead with detail, right? When the port moves in 10 years, the government's already thinking five years beyond that, how to build supporting infrastructure after the port moves. So they planned the whole area where I live, that whole development of Tanjong Pagar downtown is the new financial center. That's completely evolved in only five years. Singapore believes in smart cities. Because it's small and dynamic, it has to be a knowledge network hub. It has to be a thought leader, bringing in talent, but knowing that some, a lot of the execution will happen across Asia. So Singapore is very aggressive in terms of, of technology, uh, long-term planning, yet the environment is very supportive of businesses and entrepreneurs to break out and change. And, and I think one of the big developments is Singapore always played a superb role in helping Fortune 500 companies set up regional headquarters here. But now they've learned the importance of small medium enterprises and the startup space. This is the new economy. This is where most of the jobs are. This is where the future is being decided. So in the last five years, you've seen a whole slew of new initiatives from the government supporting SMEs, supporting tech startups in all different spaces, and I think that's going to become a much heavier uh, breakout going forward. So Paul, during the Young Entrepreneurs Network Forum, I hear a very interesting story from you on how you handle the employees where you're supposed to fire them, but you manage to keep them and make them star performers. And that's something that I actually like about the way you think about how to motivate talent around you. Can you talk more about your experience and how to motivate people? How do you manage people? What, what are the lessons that you always put yourself before you execute on how you want to get people to move forward? It's an easy question. The answer is a little longer because there are different points. The first is I love to build companies 
and I love to restructure companies. This is what I enjoy the most. The most exciting thing is watching talent unleashed in all of these spaces and in all of the, the places. I've been involved uh, running companies across 14 countries in Asia, and the most fun is seeing people evolve. When I set up companies or I restructure companies, as we did with part of Inchcape into IDS, I will look at experienced talent, people who have been there, who have a lot of loyalty and wealth, but they're in a pattern, they're in a comfort zone. And I will look at new generation talent out of the schools or just a few years out who are unconstrained, who need training but have incredible energy and are challenging. And I fuse them together because I think that's the best world. The, the new generation are pushing the ideas and the boundaries and, and the senior generation is sharing their knowledge and experiences. And, and I try to fuse these two cultures together wherever possible. This is maybe more an Asian thing, but, but in the companies I'm involved in, I think we as leaders, we have to pulse what happens, put the organization into strategic plans. Usually I like three to five year strategic plans. And then I build tactical execution plans of what each group has to do on a quarterly basis. And I tell them to run with it. So we, we jointly develop these long-term and quarterly measurement tools. And then I think you have to let people run and give them a chance to impact things. And then the role for me and other leaders is to pulse and, and just to make sure, make sure things are moving the right way. But then you also have to make it fun. And so I've been in one business where I tore out all the walls of most of the managers into cubicles and the few most senior people, including myself, uh, we put up glass walls. I cut my office in half and I put up a glass wall so everyone could see me and it would be easier to approach, right? Walls are barriers to ideas and talent growing and learning from each other. So I think that's important. Status is not about your office, it's about the connectedness with other people. And I have had times where I've had to make tough decisions. Then you have to rely on your own ethics and what you believe in as a leader. I had a case in one, one company where I was told to fire two people during the build-up stage that I knew were really important and I decided that I would instead absorb their salary for an interim period until we were in a stronger place because I knew I needed them and they turned out to be some of my best team members long term. And we still stay in touch with you. I still stay in touch in, in, with key members of my teams in all the companies. Some of us get together every two months uh, just to keep that relationship going, right? Chia Chek is now DHL's country manager in Taiwan and Chaitanya is running uh, Deloitte supply chain and e-commerce solutions in India. So it, it's really a, an amazing thing when you, you have talent working with you and you see how far they can go in the future through their, their skills. I've also had a case where I bought over an air freight company that was hemorrhaging, losing money for multiple years. And the only way to save it was to do radical restructuring. So I had to eliminate half the people in order to save the jobs of the other half. And I just walked in and I had to make that decision and it was very difficult. And then I tried to, I protected everyone, same terms and conditions, and the ones that I had to phase out, I tried to help them find jobs so that they could land on their feet with dignity. 
But the, the important thing is we not only got the company profitable within six months, we actually added 20 new employees by the end of the year. So there are times you have to make tough decisions on restructuring, but you have to do it in an honorable way. Because every organization, the greatest gift is the human talent within your organization. And if you don't treat people with respect and, and reward them and motivate them, then you're never going to have a great organization. What are the advice that you would give young leaders to think about when it comes to managing people? I mean, different people have different parts of their experience. They usually encounter certain difficulties, particularly in terms of hiring and firing people, right? How do you actually advise them and how do you get them to think around about it when it comes to a situation where it's very extreme, where you need to do extreme restructuring and then there is a situation where you inherit a team but there is a certain culture that is maybe passive-aggressive towards the new leader that has come in? There are a couple of angles I'd like to hit in answering that question. The first is well, how I benefited. So when I was running a few companies for Dr. Victor Fong, he made it a point of pulling the senior managers together and bringing in top guest speakers to just take us out, to make us think radical. But he also sent Hao Li, uh, who's one of the top professors in supply chain from Stanford, over for a day just to spend with my team, just to brainstorm, to share ideas, to see what we were doing. And everyone was inspired from that. That's rare for a small breakout company, but he arranged that because it was important to him. And he was always available. Even now, years after I've left the company, I could still call him and he's thoughtful enough to give me advice. So you realize this is so important. When I was in India, Mr. Mittal and I, Ajay Mittal and I, we created an advisory board of thought leaders so that whatever we were doing in India, we wanted a group of thought leaders from global business who could question us, who could challenge us to keep us out of our comfort zone. So we never thought we were building anything too great. We wanted to make sure that we were challenged by other thought leaders. And, and I give Ajay a lot of credit with that. But I think you hit different situations. You know, when, when we bought over Inchcape in Lian Fung and we took it public on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange in the IDS group with Ben Cheng leading that, in Singapore, I was asked to turn around the traditional giant logistics center, the ASRS, the largest in Asia at that time, and that was an old traditional culture. And then I had this new 4PL supply chain team of, of thought leaders and McKinsey and MIT backgrounds, and they were in two separate spaces, and I decided to create a controlled collision. And I decided, even though they were separate groups, I merged them into one office space. And it created conflicts and tension for a short time. And then you could see the atmosphere change in. We, and in addition, while we were doing that, we did company luncheons and we did karaoke, small karaoke events, mixing the teams together. And within six months, you could see the transformation. The traditional culture was sharing their knowledge and experience with the newer group, and the newer group was sharing more tech-savvy expertise and knowledge. And, and I think both became better. But the gamble was, I put them together, they had to work together even though they were in separate businesses. And I think part of the new economy is creating controlled collisions, where people are not allowed to be in their own comfort space, 
but they need to intermix with people with various backgrounds and they all become stronger as a result. So, Paul, thank you for this first part of the conversation. We are going to come back in the next part to talk a lot more about your expertise, which is the logistics and the supply chain piece.